Life is exceedingly complex. Sometimes it's difficult to make sense of all that is happening in our world. Today, we are in a passage that has a striking turn of events in the life of David. He makes some disturbing decisions that are hard to understand. We need to ask ourselves, what are we to make of David's fleeing to Gath for his life? Was that a a good or a bad decision? And what about all the aftermath that follows? How we view this passage is critical to our own decision-making in difficult times. There are a number of troubling aspects about our passage this morning. And as we have been stressing in the past weeks, that David must be very careful in interpreting and reacting to the providence of God, so must we this morning. So we are left with a number of interpretive challenges in understanding this text. First, God is not mentioned at all in chapter 27, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 2, which is our text this morning. God is out of sight, but he is not off the scene. God's invisible hand of providence is still at work. But we must ask ourselves, as we've been asking for the last few weeks, what is God doing? How is God intending his providence to be responded to? There is no divine commentary supplied on the text to help us understand what God thinks about David's decisions and actions. When I speak of divine commentary, I mean of such interjections as, and God was displeased with David's decision, or David grew in favor in God's sight as the result of what David did. There are no such interpretive passages in our text. How God views David's decisions and actions must be deduced. That is, we must figure it out. But the question is, how? How? Well, I would submit to you two important ways. First, from our understanding of God's precepts and his revealed will in Scripture. And secondly, from the insightful clues that we have in the passage before us. And there are some very helpful interpretive clues that are given to us along the way. What is foremost is the thinking that formed the basis for David's and Achish's decisions. That is essential for us to understand. We must pay very close attention to David's thought process. And fortunately, we are not left to wonder or speculate about what is going on in the mind of David or in Achish throughout this passage. Their thoughts are clearly revealed to us. And that forms the basis of our understanding the text. You'll notice three verses in particular. First, 1 Samuel 27.1. Then David said in his heart, so now we know this thought process that David is going through. David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Verse 11. 
And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, now here's the basis, here's the rationale, here's the thought process of David's actions, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David is done, lest they reveal the truth of David's actions. And the third is given to us in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 12. And Achish said to David, thinking, again, the motivation, the thought process, the rationale, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. It is the thoughts of Achish and of David that provide the basis for our understanding of the actions of David and Achish. Our theme this morning is that God is faithful despite David's unfaithfulness. I think that's the ultimate takeaway of this passage. God is faithful despite David's unfaithfulness. We begin by looking at the thinking behind David's decision to flee to Gath. Verse 1. Then David said in his heart, this is the way in which he reasoned with himself. David said in his heart, First, David said to himself that eventually Saul was going to kill David. If you look at verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. David had despaired of life. David became convinced that Saul was going to win the day. That Saul was going to be able to overcome David, and that David would perish at Saul's hand. Now, this is a remarkable change in heart from where David was in the last passage we just considered. Just a few verses earlier. Last week, David expressed supreme confidence in the Lord's protection of David as well as God's judgment upon Saul. In 1 Samuel 26, 23, it reads, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, he's speaking to Saul, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all my tribulation. And then the next verse is he hands Saul the spear back, if you remember last week. So we leave on the spiritual high of David just convinced that God was going to watch over him and protect him and keep him. But now, David believes that he's going to perish at Saul's hand. Verse 1 of chapter 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day in the hand of Saul. Key word is there, perish. I'm going to die at the hands of Saul. Why this is, again, so remarkable is because it is in such antithesis to what David says in 1 Samuel 26.10, if you look there. And David said, 1 Samuel 26.10, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, referring to Saul, or his day will come to die, or he will go into battle and perish. It's the exact same word that's used in our text. And it's found only one other place in the book of 1 Samuel. So last week, 
David is saying, Saul is going to perish. He's going to die, either in battle or the Lord will strike him down. But God will protect me. Saul's going to die. Now we get to chapter 27, and David says, I'm going to die at Saul's hand. Saul's going to be victorious over me, and I'm going to die. Of course, David knew the promises of God. We had revealed that repeatedly, that God had said he was going to be king over Israel. He wasn't going to die. He was going to reign, and God was going to protect him. So we asked the question, what happened? Why did David change his heart and mind? What went on between chapter 26 and chapter 27? Why this tremendous turnaround? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know. There's not a clue given. In the passage, nothing to explain David's thought process of how he arrived at this new and different conclusion. What is not, the why is not stressed. What is stressed is the fact of the decision. What is stressed is what David thought. Not why he thought it, but what he thought. That's what we need to keep in mind. And it stands in direct contrast to our verse that we used for call to worship, and that is, lean not unto your own understanding, and all of your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. David is relying on his own understanding, he's relying on his own take of the situation. Secondly, David sees no good alternative than to flee to Gath, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. He words, There is nothing better for me than I should escape in the land of the Philistines. I don't have any good options here, he's saying. I am forced to do what I don't want to do. I have no choice. I have looked at all my options. And David says, there's no better way for me than to go to the land of Philistines. That's what I need to do. That again is rather striking and remarkable in light of the fact that David had done that once before in chapter 21. If you remember, David fled to Gath. And let me just read that passage to you again. And David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten of thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I like madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come to my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Did not go well the last time that he was in Gath. Did not find that as a place of refuge. Had to flee for his life. 
And we looked at the psalm when we were in that passage in which David is very repentant and saddened by the disgraceful way in which he acted in order to obtain his escape. And now we find David doing the very same thing that he had repented of and that he had determined was wrong. He's going to go to gas again, saying, I have no other choice. And again, despite the fact that God had told David in chapter 22, after David's having fleed to Gath the first time, then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go in the land of Judah. You don't belong here, David. You belong in the land of Judah. You belong in the promised land. That's where you should be. God had told David that. And now, David's going to leave the land of Judah, and he's going to go to Gath and the Philistines, because he says, I have no other choice. There's nothing better for me. He decides he can't remain in Judah. Thirdly, David sees going to Gath as his only means of escape. Then uh, at the end of verse 1, it says, Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David says, If I go to Gath, Saul will quit chasing me. That's what i got to do. So David follows his heart, verses 2 and 3. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, of Inoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. David's plan works, verse 4. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. We need to ask the question, would Saul have continued to pursue David if he had not fled to Gath? We don't know. We don't know. At the end of chapter 26, Saul returns home. Saul says he's not going to chase David anymore. But David comes not to believe that. Would he have changed his mind? Would he have chased after David? We're not told. We're not told. We are told that he no longer seeks David's life. I'm going to say more about David's plan working later in the message. But the first application is this. That is, the text does not focus upon why David changed his heart. The text focuses on the reality of David's condition. Nothing is hid from us. Here we see an honest representation of how difficult life can be. Here's a revelation of the human condition. Here is that nagging truth that the best of people waver in their commitment to God. That all too often there is a temptation to act contrary to what we know to be right. And there was tremendous pressure upon David. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be pursued and persecuted for as long and as a difficult time that David was going through. 
I think it's easy to empathize and, and understand David's concern. And at the same time, we have to understand the consequences of his actions. What we need to understand from the very start is three things. First, David was wrong to think that he would eventually die at Saul's hand. That's just wrong. God had promised David he would be king over Israel. And that Saul would die and David would replace him. So that's just flat out wrong. Secondly, David was wrong in thinking that he had no better alternative. It would have been better for him to stay in Judah. We'll talk about that later. Third, we must keep those thoughts in mind as we work our way through the rest of this narrative. So now we pick up where David is in Gath. Number two. Once in Gath, David presents himself as servant to Achish to do his bidding. It's striking that David receives a warm welcome in Gath, knowing the circumstances in chapter 21 when David had fled for his life and pretended to be crazy in order to escape. In 1 Samuel 27, 5, it says, Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Uh, John Woodhouse puts forth in his commentary some reasons why he thinks that Achish may have been more uh, open to David's being there this time. He writes, and I quote, the situation may have changed since David's last visit to Gath and in another respect, since the hostilities between Saul and David had resulted in at least two incidents that may have well reached the ears of citizens of Gath. Saul had slaughtered the priests of, of Nob in 1 Samuel chapter 22, and there had been the great chase in the wilderness of, of Macon in 1 Samuel 23, 24 to 29. If the bitter hatred of Israel's king towards David was now well known to Achish, then on the assumption that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Achish may well have been better disposed toward David than he would have otherwise have expected. Of course, our text doesn't say any of that. It just simply says that David says, if I have found favor in your sight. David must have proven himself to some degree we're told earlier in the text that he'd been living in Gath. Now in verse 5, David said to Achish, if I found favor in your eyes, if I've proven myself to you in some way. We're not told how that happened, but evidently it did. But what I think we must understand beyond all of this is God's providential care and invisible hand in this incident. God is still watching over David. God is still protecting David. David is not going to die because God doesn't want him to die. Period. Period. David requested a city from Achish. Verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your, your eyes, let a place 
be given me in one of the country towns that I might dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So he's presenting himself as a servant to Achish. I will do your bidding. Just give me a, a city to live in. There's no point in us living together, he says. David is granted Ziklag, verse 6. So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Ziklag has some significance for us this morning. In the book of Joshua, we have the promised land divided among the tribes of Israel. And in Joshua chapter 13, verse 1, it reads, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. So after the, the children of Israel went into the promised land, there was still a lot of the territory that they had not yet conquered. There was still a lot of the territory that had not come under their possession, under their authority. And they were to go and they were to conquer those lands. And it reads, this is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines, and all that of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, from the east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Abim. Ziklag was supposed to be given to the tribe of Simeon, Joshua 19, 1 to 5. The second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans. And their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. And they had for their inheritance Beersheba, Sheba, Moladah, Hazar, Shual, Bala, Ezem, Lotad, Bethel, Horma, Ziklag. Ziklag. So this was a city that God had said was to be under the control of the Israelites. And then we have this note in verse 6. So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, and here's the note, Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So through this incident, now Ziklag comes under the authority of David and continues in possession by the Israelites until the time of the writing of 1 Samuel, that day being when 1 Samuel is written. So here we have God's providence at work. Here is a fulfillment, if you will, of the will of God. The question is, does God's providence excuse David's activity? Is God's providence to be understood as the reason for David's actions? Hang with me. Let's read verses 8 through 9. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gergesites, the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take them away, the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. David then lies about his activity, verse 10. 
When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jehoramielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He was saying, I was raiding in Judah. I was raiding my people. I was raiding your enemies. When in fact, he was actually raiding against the Philistines. So he lied to Achish. David covered up his lies by killing those who knew the truth. Verse 11. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, now here's the thought process, here's what motivated David's actions, that's key, what's going on in the mind of David, why is he doing what he's doing, answer, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David is done. So the reason he's killing these people is so that they don't tell the truth. There's no one alive to talk about what David had done. There's no one to rat him out. There, there's no one to reveal the activities of David. He's covering his tracks. So David covered up his lies by killing those who would know the truth. So in the mind of David, and that's what's important for us to understand what's going on in David's mind. In the mind of David, his life was more important than the lives of these others. It tells us that this David did repeatedly. You look at verse 11, the end. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. So this wasn't a one-off situation. He'd been doing this for, for months. We're told that he was there for 16 months. David was acting in a way that the Amalekites did not even act towards David. In chapter 30, David leaves Ziklag for a brief period of time because of a battle that's going to take place against the Philistines. So he leaves the city unprotected for a brief period of time. And in chapter 30, verse 1, we read this. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, they return after a period of time. On the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. Now it's striking that the Amalekites spare the women. David does not. So what are we to think about David's activities? Well, I'd submit to you that, first of all, while one could argue that God's purposes were some way being achieved, and they were, it must be remembered that that was not what was in the heart of David. David was not doing this in order to serve the Lord. He was not doing this in order to fulfill the plan of God. He was killing these people so that they wouldn't rat him out. He says it specifically. Now here's an important theological truth. An action can serve God's sovereign purpose and yet still be wrong when it's done for the wrong reasons. So you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. 
If you do the right thing for the wrong reasons, it's wrong. And there are a number of classic examples in the scripture. I'll give you just two. One of them is Pharaoh. Pharaoh, in his refusing to let the children of Israel go. That was in God's plan. God had intended that the children of Israel would not be released by Pharaoh. Book of Romans says, For this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in you. God had placed Pharaoh in a position where his rebellion would reveal the power of God. But what he did was wrong. And he's condemned for his actions. What's even more striking is on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and proclaims concerning the crowd and the uh, Jewish leaders, him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. So Peter says, the reason that Jesus died is because it was in the plan of God. If it wasn't in the plan of God, you could never have been successful. God had determined to deliver him over for crucifixion. He goes on to say, Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So they're not praised for crucifying Jesus, for they weren't trying to secure the salvation of the world. They weren't trying to accomplish the plan of God. Their heart was wicked. What motivated them was their hatred of Jesus. In the providence of God, God's purpose was fulfilled, but in their activity, they were wicked. It's possible. It's possible because of Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God. Our sin and our obedience but our sin is never praiseworthy. Just because an act is used by God does not make the act holy and just and good. I'll have more to say about that in the conclusion. Moving on, Achish's response to David. First and foremost, Achish trusted David. Verse 12, Achish trusted David. Wow. Saul didn't trust David. Achish trusts David. The reason, humanly speaking, that Achish trusted David was because he believed David lies. He believed what David was telling him. Verse 12, Achish trusted David thinking, now here's what the thought process, here's what's going through the mind of Achish. He's thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Achish says, David, in raiding his own people, in rebelling against Saul, he's cut his own throat. He's burned his bridges. Achish says, he can't go back to Israel after all the stuff he's been doing. He's going to be faithful to me. He has to be. They're going to hate David for what he's done. Because he believes David's lies. Because he believes that David's been raiding in Israel when David's been actually raiding against the Philistines. So he trusts because he's deceived. 
David, Achish believed that David had turned his back on the Israelites, and ultimately, that David had turned his back upon God. Achish trusted David to such a degree that he recruited David to fight with him against the Philistines, verse 1 of chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David says, Achish says, David, you're going to fight with me, you and your men. You're on my side. You're going to go out against those horrible Israelites that you've been raiding against. David gives a nebulous but positive response in joining the battle. For notice verse 2, David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. A lot of commentators point out that that's nebulous, saying, he could have been saying, you know, you'll find out. And maybe there is some nebulousness there, but what is not nebulous is what he says, very well, you will know what your servant can do. He gives Achish the impression that he will fight with Achish on his side. And that will be developed much more in a couple weeks from now. But that's the impression he gives him. And so Achish entrusts his life to David, verse 2. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, well, this is how he took it, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Not only will you go out to battle with me, but I want you right next to me. David, you're going to be my protector. You're going to be my defender. (laughs) As we go out and fight the Philistines. I can count on you. We'll see what happens in a few weeks. We're going to leave it there because that's where the passage leaves it. And it goes off into a whole other story about Saul and the witch of Endor that we look at next week. So we're left hanging, as it were, as to what happens next. But the question is, what are we to think about all that has taken place to this point? Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says this, and I quote, Our narrative is fascinating. David's scheme, it says, is successful. David's decision is vindicated. David's thinking is accurate. He had thought that if he made the move to Philistia, Saul would give up looking for him, and he did. David is right on target. Perhaps David's men and their families enjoyed their first sound sleep in months. Gath may be a Philistine, but it certainly beats a cave. So David's plan works. Saul does not pursue him anymore. Mission accomplished. And David's request works. For when David asked Achish for a country town away from Gath, Achish granted him Ziklag. So David enjoys some freedom in addition to his security, and David's deception works for him. Ziklag, David, can attack Israel's enemies, thus helping Israel while alleging to be attacking Israelite territory, thus convincing Achish. The whole scheme has been a masterstroke. And he says this, it is not faithful, it is nevertheless successful. 
And then he says this, there is a way that seems right unto man. There is a way which seems right unto man. Success trumps everything. As long as it works, it must be right. As long as the outcome is good, it must be what God wants. But we have to ask ourselves, was it right? Was it right? Just because something works does not make it right. If you steal from a bank but don't get caught, does that make it right? Just because you cheat on your taxes and you increase in your wealth, does that make it right? Does that all of a sudden give you God's stamp of approval that you are doing what God wants you to do? Is the takeaway that if life is hard and difficult for us for standing up for the Lord, then what you need to do is pretend that God's people are your enemies. Young people, if you go off to school, if you have peer pressure, just pretend you hate the church. Just pretend that you are on their side. You agree with them. You want nothing to do with God or God's people. Convince them that you're like them. Is that what we're to take away? Is that what this passage is to teach? That's the, the proper response? It may work. Maybe nobody will ever make fun of you again. Because they think that you are one of them. We need to see a big picture of what's going on here. A picture that's much bigger than just chapter 27. We're to see some striking contrasts in our chapter with the surrounding chapters. The chapters which follow help to inform our understanding of this one. Context is everything. First, there is no mention of David seeking the Lord's direction throughout the entirety of this chapter. David is leaning completely upon his own understanding. David does not inquire of the Lord, though he does have the ability and the privilege of doing so. He doesn't seek God's direction. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. Very informative for this passage. 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting at verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, they had left. Now they returned. On the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against the Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city that found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. They were just so beside themselves because their families had been taken. God spared the lives of David's family and his men when they had not spared the lives of others. Verse 5, David's two wives and also had been taken captive, Abinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. But things were not turning out too well, after all, for David. 
Because now David's men blamed David for the mess they were in. Verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because the people were bitter in soul. They say, David, what in the world did you get us into? Look what's happened. Our lives, our wives have been taken. And they're ready to kill David. It doesn't really turn out all that good after all, does it? Now, finally David turns to the Lord, verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each one for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Wow. Don't find that in chapter 27. Now David strengthens himself in the Lord. Now he looks to the Lord for his strength. Now he looks to the Lord for his deliverance. Now he's at wit's end. Now he says, God, help me. And David seeks the Lord's guidance. Verse 7. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Abimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered them, pursue. Bring me the ephod. You saw that on a number of occasions. Let me inquire of the Lord. Not chapter 27. Not chapter 27. Chapter 30. Let me find out what God wants me to do. There's a way which seemed right unto man. It's so easy for us to decide what is the right thing to do based on our circumstances, based on our being in circumstances that are unpleasant, being tired, being weary, and saying to myself, I have no other choice. David's choice was to look to God. That was the alternative. That was the alternative. He had a better alternative. There is also a striking contrast to David and Saul in chapter 28. Chapter 28 seems like it's just out there and it's not related, but it it certainly is. Two aspects of the contrast between Saul and David's life. First, in chapter 28, Saul seeks the Lord's guidance when David did not. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3, well, 1 to 5 in 28. 1 Samuel 28. We'll read verse 1, for that's part of our text. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the romancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Verse 6, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, he's afraid. Saul is. Saul sees the enemy. What does Saul do? 
He inquires of the Lord. He asks the Lord, what shall I do? That's not what David did in chapter 27. It's a stark contrast. Saul, the one that we would think would not turn to God, is the one who does, and the one who we think would turn to God doesn't. But here's the most starking contrast. And I'll say much more about this next week, 1 Samuel 28.6. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. The Lord didn't answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. God was bringing judgment upon Saul, and God refused to answer Saul. Saul wanted to know what to do, and God was silent. God was judging Saul. What is in stark contrast, back to chapter 30, when David comes back to Ziklag after it's been burned down, and after the family's been all taken, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 8, it says, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered them, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. God answers David when David inquires. Why? Because of the grace of God. Not because of David's faithfulness. Not because of David's goodness. Not because David had done the right things, but simply because God was gracious. God spared David's lives. God spared the lives of his family. God heard his prayers. God answered him. Not because he was deserving, but because God is faithful. God is faithful when we are not faithful. That's the great lesson of this passage. God keeps his word when we do not. God had promised that David would not die, and David does not die. Even when he lies. Even when he kills. And he may look as being so bright and so witty in his scheming. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. That's why it works. It doesn't work because David's going to find himself in a real mess. He's got a real mess in Ziklag, and he's got a real mess in what's he going to do in going to battle when this king believes he's on his side. David is in a mess. But God will get him out of it. God will help him. God will deliver him. God will be faithful. God will be true. Now we're back to the question. Was there no better alternative? Listen again to the words of Ralph Davis. I quote, We must avoid cheap shots at David when he was in such straits. Yet we must not ignore the import of the story, which we might surmise as, The will of God for us includes more than escaping from Saul. No one disputes the malice of Saul or pretends that escaping him was a merry lark. But this peril from Saul may not be so nasty or so damaging in the long run as being dubbed a traitor. He's saying there's something more important here. 
than David preserving his life. That is David preserving his integrity. David preserving his, his reputation. Think with me about the negative aspects of David's decisions. David failed in being a testimony to his family and men. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 22, describes the men that were wicked as wicked and worthless fellows. They were described that way before. David did nothing to dissuade these wicked and worthless fellows from their understanding of who God was. Not in this instance. In other instances, yes, but not in this one. David failed to be a witness to Achish. David gains Achish respect for all the wrong reasons. David was appealing to all the base instincts within Achish. David gave the impression that he was not submissive to Saul or to God. David's actions reinforced the idea that Achish's actions were justified. David gains Achish's, Achish's approval by pretending to approve what Achish did. No testimony, no witness. Like I say, it's like a young person going off to school pretending not to be a Christian simply so no one makes fun of you. It may get the desired result, but it won't bring glory to God. It won't be a means of your being a witness. It won't achieve God's glory. David failed in bringing glory to God. God will be glorified in his providence. In later chapters, we'll see God at work. But here, but now, in this time, in this passage, God is not glorified. God is not seen as the protector. God is not seen as the deliverer. What's held out is the scheming and the rationalizations of David. What are we to learn from this passage? Well, I think a few things. First of all, why do we go through spiritual dry spells in our own lives? Just as I can't explain that answer in David's life, I can't explain that answer in our lives. I don't know. I don't know why that happens. Why is it that we have to hear the same truth over and over and over and over again? That God loves us, that God cares for us, that God forgives us, that God watches over us, that God protects us. The very things that we all say we believe, and we do believe, that's the key, we do believe. And then along comes some circumstance that just throws all that on its head. And we act in a way that is totally contrary to what we really believe deep down in our heart. Why is that? I don't know. But I do know what we should do. We should repent. We should not rationalize. We should seek the Lord again. We should inquire of the Lord. And we should inquire of the Lord early. Let's covenant with ourselves and with God that we'll be more careful to pray more fervently about major decisions and minor decisions in our lives. And not just look at what I would like or, or, or what I think would be best or weigh my pros and cons, but asking God, show me, Lord, what you would have me to do. Show me your character. Show me 
that you'll protect me. Show me that you'll keep me. Show me where you want me to be. David eventually gets there. Oh, if you'd only gotten there quicker. How often in our own lives, if only we would get there quicker. We must constantly be on guard. When the scripture says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. That's true of us of all times throughout the entirety of our lives. We constantly have to be going to God, asking God to direct our thoughts and our minds. Because left to ourselves, we made some pretty bad decisions. Inquire of the Lord early. Great takeaways. First, God is faithful despite David's unfaithfulness. God continues to spare the life of David. God continues to watch over David. God continues to protect David. God continues faithful and always to David, even when David is not faithful to God. But the great joy is, people, that's true of us. That's true of us. God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. God is faithful to us even when we disgrace him. God is faithful to us even when we fail to trust him. God is faithful to us even when doubts and fears come into our hearts and lives. God is faithful to us even when we make the wrong decisions. God is faithful because he's faithful to himself. I will lead you in the paths of righteousness for my name's sake, for his own glory, for his own truthfulness. He will not lie. God is not a man that he should lie. Despite our lies, despite David's lies, God will be honest, God will be faithful. God is providentially at work And as I have been warning, week after work, week, there are no bubbles. You know, you, 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 there's no caption in life where all of a sudden the words appear over the situation and say, look at God's providence. No, we have to discern that every day in our lives. Here for the first time, we've been given the challenge in chapter 27 to say, where is God's providence, for his name is not mentioned? I say God's providence is in the success. God's providence is in the sparing of his life. God's providence is turning Achish's heart towards David. It's not the schemes. It's the goodness and grace of God. And never believe, never believe, that our scheming and our sinfulness advances the cause of Christ or ourselves. It doesn't. And when our scheming and our sinning seems to be advancing the cause of Christ, give the glory to God's providence in his overarching 
sovereign intervention in our lives. Other great takeaway, look at the big picture. Look at the big picture. Don't just stop at chapter 27. Look at chapter 28. Look at chapter 29. Look at chapter 30. Look at what's coming. So often our focus is so narrow. Our focus is today. Today's problem. And solving today's problem. And failing to recognize what that's going to mean two years from now, three years from now, four years from now, when that problem just doesn't exist anymore. But how will we have conducted ourselves in this moment, in this time? Be faithful to God now. Trust Him now. And see what God will do. God used David's actions. That does not mean that God prompted those actions or even approved of those actions. God will continue to watch over and protect David, and God will be faithful and watch over us and protect us. God will keep his promises to David. God will keep his promises to us. We will see that in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us to be faithful to you. There are so many circumstances in life in which it seems as though we have no alternative but to do what is evil or wrong. We convince ourselves there's nothing better for us in this instance than to walk in a way that is contrary to what we should know to be the truth. Oh Lord, how easy our hearts are deceived, how easy we talk ourselves into rationalizations in which we justify doing the wrong thing. We make it look good especially when it seems to turn out all right, especially when it seems to be successful. But Lord, help us to understand what successfulness is. Help us to understand that there's more in life than our own pleasure, that there are bigger issues than simply, do I make it or not? There are issues about God's glory. There are issues about obedience. There are issues about being an example, a witness, a testimony. There's an understanding the reason that I'm placed on this earth is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us. Help us in all the decisions that we make, in all the actions that we take. Calm our fearing hearts. Oh, Lord, renew our commitment daily. We may be on a real mountaintop. We may be where David was last week, trusting in God wholly and solely, not fearing Saul at all. Preserve us from those times when we're tempted to fear Saul again. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.